Good morning, everyone. Well, we're going to continue our summer series, Walking in Wisdom in the Book of Proverbs. And we're going to continue on in chapter one today. I want to start today with a couple of quotes on wisdom. The first one is by Socrates, who said, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. And the second one by William Shakespeare, who said, the fool doth think themselves to be wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Which is a, uh, a subject that's been debated and, and uh, tossed about by philosophers and theologians for literally thousands of years, and that is the question, how does man come to know anything? The technical term for that is the study of epistemology. How does man come to know knowledge? How does he learn? There are two predominant theories that have emerged throughout the millennia. The first one is the theocentric theory, the one that we hold to, is that God has created man in his own image and equipped him to think God's thoughts after him. That is that man is an analogical being. All of the knowledge that he can attain must come to him uh, as revelation by God, whether through, through the general revelation, that is the, uh, the, the creation, the things that God has created that's talked about in, the, in, the, uh, in Psalm 19, you find that there. Or, or the second view is the fallen view that says that man is self-referential. That is, that he can come to knowledge in and of himself without any type of revelatory external information made available to him. Well, um, this is actually spoken of even in the scriptures. We read in James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, about these two sources of knowledge. We read, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. So you see there in those verses, you have two sources of wisdom. That which descends from above, which is God revealing to man, and then that which is sensual, terrestrial, earth-based, and ultimately demonic-based. So we know that we must seek our wisdom from above, that is from God. Not from within ourselves or our environment, but this is from God, and this is the true wisdom that the book of Proverbs is imparting to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, as uh, Pastor Roman covered last week, Proverbs chapter one, verse six tells us the way we are the, the, the purpose of, of the book of Proverbs, and just to reiterate, but I'm going to give you the, uh, the New Living Translation because it spells it out so nice. Speaking, exploring, um, let me put my glasses on here. Exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. So this is actually a more accurate translation of the Hebrew text than the New King James translation, because this is speaking about a parable, which is a, sim a simile or a parable in poetic form. So you might ask, well, what does the Bible say about parables? 
Well, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 13, Jesus said, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So the purpose of parables is to conceal the truth, conceal the deeper meaning from a specific group of people, yet at the same time revealing it to another group of people. So a parable is essentially an alongside story that uses something of the environment to convey to a group of people a message that God has for them. We have those here shrouded in the Proverbs. But it also says the words of the wise spoken in riddle form. So indeed we have that here too in the book of Proverbs. We have wise sayings in parabolic form that are sometimes given in riddle form. So the book of Proverbs is that type of wisdom literature. And these are the elements in which we can mine out the knowledge that God has for us in these Proverbs. So in our text today, we are going to be mining out a parable that also has the element of a riddle. Okay, so as, uh, as Pastor Roman gave some background last week on the author here is King Solomon. Um, most probably during his middle years, he started well, and as the years went on, uh, he, he allowed himself to be, uh, to be seduced away from following God fully. As Pastor Roman mentioned last week, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. One would wonder where he found the time to write the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but he did, right? And so you can see the difference. If you read Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book of the Bible, I don't know if that says something about me, but uh, it's a book that I've always loved the most, I think especially because that was the book that I was reading on the night that I believe God's Spirit breathed life into me. So it's been a special book to me, but you can see a difference in Solomon's demeanor, in his writing, as he moved from the period where he wrote the book of Proverbs to where he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So this was probably around mid-reign, around mid-life, that he compiled all of these parables. And you'll notice that although the term in, in the Proverbs is repeatedly to my son, to my son, we understand under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that it's to be taken by us generically. But we also have to understand contextually that these are words of wisdom that Solomon was speaking to his son, Rehoboam, who would succeed him on the throne one day. So there were exhortations to his son, Rehoboam. And what we'll find as we go through these two verses, we'll find two levels of knowledge, instruction, and wisdom. So there is a top-level teaching, which is pretty basic. I mean, you don't need to have a degree in theology to understand what Solomon is saying here to his son. Watch your associations. Be careful who you draw, who you allow yourself to be drawn into fellowship, into friendship and partnerships. And there is a second level of teaching. Well, 
in the rabbinical school, they actually applied this template to biblical teaching where they believed that there were four levels of interpretation to any text of scripture. They were called Peshat, Remez, Duresh, and Sad. So today we're only going to be looking at the top two because I, I believe that those are the ones that are valid. So, so the top teaching, Peshat, would be that basic level of teaching where the words just convey what they convey. And then there's the second level, Remez, which gives us a little bit deeper understanding of the teaching. So let's begin today by looking at the top level teaching in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Basic instruction on caution, make, on being cautious in your associations. Starting in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. So as I went through the text and broke down some of these words, looking at them in, their, in the Hebrew language and then going down to the Hebrew roots, I found some interesting things. And I'm going to see, I'm going to quiz you here, see if you can pick up how one of, one of these words is used. So the word to hear there means to pay attention to and obey, right? And so uh, I think it was two weeks ago I said that we are good at hearing but not good at listening. So the word to hear means to hear and pay attention. So you hear something, you absorb it, and then you, 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 you place it in action in your life. He says to pay attention to, to heed my instruction. Now this is the instruction coming from a father, which is actually reproof, warning, restraint, and the idea of discipline. So it's an instruction that the father brings to the son that has the effect of disciplining them in order to have a well-disciplined mind and a well-disciplined life. When it comes to the mother, it says, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Now, the Hebrew word for law there is Torah. Does anybody know what that word means? Torah or Torah? Can anybody tell me what Torah means? Okay. Nobody knows what Torah means. The Torah is the Hebrew word for the scriptures, the five books of Moses. So what Solomon is saying here to his son is pay attention to the instruction and the way that I exemplify the things that I have learned to you through the process of being an example and in disciplining you to follow in the right way and heed and pay attention to the instruction of your mother in the way that you should order your life, the way that you should order your thoughts. So speech, uh, so teaching and instruction. He says, if you do that, if you hear the instruction of your father and not forsake the law of your mother, they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. So that graceful ornament is a wreath of grace, and it's a symbol of rule that he would one day 
inherit when Solomon passed into eternity, that his son Rehoboam would become leader of the nation, and that if he paid attention to his father's example and to his mother's instruction, his rule would be one that was typified and characterized by grace. And then he goes on and says, they will be an ornament of grace and chains about your neck. So I was very confused by this because when I looked at the Hebrew word for neck, it was actually in the plural. So what the Hebrew actually says is that they will be a chain, precious, a precious chain around your necks in the plural. So I got confused by this and the first thing I did was I consulted with you know, the predominant Jewish commentary, Rashi, and he said, well, the word is plural there because what it refers to is the trachea. And I said, okay, I'm still not understanding that. So I blasted a text off to my rabbi friend. I said, can you give me any more information on this? To which he replied, yes. The trachea is that tube that connects the larynx to your lungs, and it is reinforced by rings of cartilage. So what the text is actually saying here is that if you obey my instruction and the Torah of your mother, your rule will be a rule of grace, characterized by kindness and benevolence. And your speech, that which issues up out of your, out of your lungs, through the trachea, through your larynx, will be a, a language of wisdom and kindness and justice. So that is what Solomon was saying to his son here in the text. But he also warns him in verse 10, it says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So to entice there is to allure through deception and flattery to open and to make room to entertain what one would not usually entertain. And that if, if his son allowed this to happen, if he allowed himself to be enticed in this way, it would completely neutralize the benefit of the father's instruction and the mother's law in his life and eventually in his rule. That word consent means to acquiesce, to accept something reluctantly, but without protest. An erosive effect. So these associations would have an erosive effect on the instruction that his mother and father had raised him up to embrace and to, and to make characteristic of his life and his future reign in the nation. That if he consented, if he allowed himself to be enticed, to be moved, to be opened up, to consider things that he would not usually consider, that would have an erosive effect on his, his resistance, and he would eventually acquiesce to those temptations. He goes on and says in verses 11 and 12, 
If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like goes down to the pit. Essentially, the enticement would come to join with them in adopting a predatorial attitude and lifestyle. And, and uh, essentially what they would be tempting him to do, enticing him to do, would be to adopt the lifestyle that is known in the animal kingdom as the ambush hunter or the ambush predator. In other words, they would lie in wait for those who were weak, for those who were vulnerable, for those who would subs were susceptible, and then would swallow them whole. Kind of like the closest thing that I can see in nature and just happened that I think we're at the end of Shark Week now, where you see the, the great white shark, which is the apex ambush predator. You know, you've got a, a fat baby seal swimming in the top of the water and you have this great white shark fly up at 60 miles an hour and just devour that seal whole. That's exactly what the Hebrew text is saying here. That's what Solomon is cautioning his son. And the Holy Spirit is cautioning us through the words of Solomon here to watch out for these types of people because they will have a corrosive effect on your inner moral compass and they will entice you and, and cause you to acquiesce and eventually tempt you into doing things that you would not normally do or consider. Okay. Moving on in verse 14, 13 and 14, we shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. So they come with the promise of material as well as social gain. No, and the reality is, is those are things that all humans desire, right? We all desire to have, you know, a certain level of material comfort, right? We, but we also desire to have a certain level of social acceptance. Okay, so what he's saying here is that watch out for these guys. Watch out for them because this is what they'll do. They're going to try and entice you to adopt a predatorial lifestyle, a, a, a lifestyle that is totally different than what you've been raised in, what you know within yourself to be true and correct. And, uh, and they come with the promise of social acceptance and material gain. Verses 15 and 16 says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for they feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Stay clear of these people and their proposed lifestyle. Their evil nature compels their behavior. It is their very nature. Do you know that there are people walking around the face of the earth that have absolutely no empathy, no conscience. You know, we know them as psychopaths. You know, uh, some of the 
more well-known serial killers. You know, and I read uh, a report once, I think it was a, a book that was written by an FBI profiler who said that at any given time, there are as many between eight and 20 serial killers roaming around the country. And so, and so this is their very nature. What Solomon is saying is they do this because it is their very nature, but it's not your nature, but you can be tempted to do those kinds of things. Okay. So it goes on and says in verses 18 and 19, see how quickly we're moving through the text? Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. Despite the allure and promises, it's a suicidal lifestyle. Okay, so there's nothing too complicated about, you know, the verses that I just went through, right? It's pretty clear. Watch your associations. Watch who you allow into your social circle, into your personal space. And this extends even over into business dealing, so on and so forth. There's, you know, there's no, you know, you don't need to have a degree in theology to understand what's going on here. So just to sum up the level one teaching before we get into the second level, the Ramez level, this is what I've got here. Be careful and cautious in your choice of associations and stay away from those who will lead you to violate your conscience. In the end, it will destroy them and you. Okay, so now, you know, we transition to the level two teaching that which the rabbis called the Ramez level. And as I read through this over and over again, it seemed to me that there was one verse in here that just seemed to break the flow of discussion. And that was verse 17, which says, surely in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. Now, so I said, hmm, let me see, let me, pull this verse out and read it without verse 17, see if it flows smoothly. So I'm going to read verse 14 down to 18, and I'm going to leave out verse 17 in my reading. Verse 14 says, Cast in your lot among us. Let us have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them, Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. Do you see how that reads very smoothly there? And I thought about this. I said, okay, what's going on here? There's something here. There's, there's a deeper level of meaning, a teaching here that I believe Solomon was trying to impart through his son, but most especially that the Holy Spirit is trying to impart to us through this writing. So here is where we go into level two. So I'm going to read verse 17 again, but I'm going to read the New Living Translation because it says it beautifully. 
If a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. If a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. I thought about this. Okay, and I finally said, you know what? What this second level is telling us here is that he, that is Rehoboam, and we, by extension, are the birds for whom this trap is being set. Let me explain what I mean to you. That was actually coded in these verses in the second level is what to look for, the mani their manifestation. So how do you identify these people? How do you identify those who will come into your lives, who will seek to ply you, to entice you, to do things that initially you find to violate your moral code or what you know the scriptures to teach? This is the second level here because we're told not only to stay away from them, but we're also told how to identify them when they come into your lives so that you can avoid them right from the onset before it gets too late and you get drawn into the snare because that is ultimately who the snare is being used for to catch you, to get you to do things that violate what you know God wants for your life. To what to look for, how they will try and entrap you through the devices that they will employ. Okay, so what does the text tell us about these types of people? Well, the first word that's used is found in verse 10, and that is the word sinners. My son, if sinners entice you. The word sinners in the Hebrew here means an offender, a criminal, one who exhibits a pattern of offensive and antisocial behavior, right? So there's a whole spectrum of behaviors that fall into this category. Both civil and social rules don't apply to them. Do you ever meet anyone like that? You know, there are, there are civil rules, cheating on your taxes, running red lights, you know, but there are things that these people do, they're habitual in their bending the rules to suit their own agenda or breaking the rules because they don't want to obey them. Not only rules that have to do with, uh, with civil law, but rules of social behavior and social norms as well. So this is what the text says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent to them. That word entice means skilled in deception and manipulation. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, we read this, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud boasters, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good, 
traitors, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So be on the lookout for who the adversary will send into your life. Now, in my morning devotions, or in my devotions, I'm reading through the epistles, and it just so happened that, you know, last night I was finishing up and I was reading Ephesians chapter 6. There is the reminder in there that ultimately you're not at war with other people. You are at war with the spiritual forces of darkness that operate behind and through them. And you can rest assured that the adversary will send some of these, adv uh, some of these emissaries to you to entice you and to tempt you to do things that you would not normally do that you, knew, that you know that the Word of God prohibits you from doing. Watch out for them. Steer clear of them. When you start to see these little red flags go up, that they tend to be one who always breaks the rules. This rule doesn't apply to them. That doesn't apply to them. They are, they are manipulative and they have an erosive quality on your resilience and resistance to not be dragged away into the things that they're dragged away in. So that's their manifestation. Steer clear of them. Their method of enticement. They exert an erosive pressure on you. Through flattery and or peer pressure, they will allure you and get you to consider an act or an action that you would not normally entertain. By subtle and incremental degrees, seduce you to entertain thoughts or behaviors that violate your moral code and conscience. I found a pretty good example in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'll just read those to you, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live for the, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So this is, this is God here, through the pen of Peter, calling all those who have professed faith in Christ Jesus to let go of those things that we indulged in and that we enjoyed in the past that were not working life and light in us but were working darkness and death in us that our life is supposed to change. Now granted, it doesn't change overnight but there is to be an incremental progress in what's called the work of sanctification in our life. So what Peter is saying here is don't do those things anymore. But if you can think back into your life, when that time came, when all of a sudden you realized that something in your life had changed 
and that now you were a child of God and you knew that you had it to start leaving those things behind, but you still had a group of friends who would indulge in those things. So what do you do? That in and of itself exerts a pressure on an individual. Well, it says in verse 4, well, let me read verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. How many of you have had friends come up to you subsequent to your coming to faith and starting to leave those things behind? How many of you have had friends come up to you or maybe family members say, you know what, you're different. You're not the same person you used to be. What's happening to you? I'm not so sure I like the change that's coming over you. How many of you have actually experienced that? Would you raise your hand? You understand that this is the corrosive effect, right? This is what the text is talking about here. Through flattery and or peer pressure, they will allure you and get you to consider an act or action that you would not normally entertain. Let me give you in the Old Testament a synonym for the word entice. So it comes from the same Hebrew word. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, where the laws are given on how to deal with apostates and, and so on and so forth. Here it's speaking to someone who claims to be speaking for God, but is indeed a false prophet. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you. There it is. That's the same word that's translated as entice in the Proverbs passage that we're dealing with. To seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil among you. So they will come your way and they will seek to seduce you through the promise of acceptance, through the promise of material and social benefit. But here's the thing. While they are trying to allure you to adopt a predatorial ambush hunter lifestyle, in fact, you are their prey. You are their target. Their proposed target and victims are merely a means to an end. You are the victim. You are the one who they are intending to swallow whole. So, reading verses 8 and 9 again. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head 
and chains about your neck. Stay far away from these types. They will allure you through various means to get you to compromise what you know to be true and right. They come to you with promises of fellowship, acceptance, and material gain. But once they get you to that place of violating your principles and joining them in their predation, you will have fallen into their snare. And you will discover that you were their target and you were their prey all along. Well, just as a postscript here, remember I said at the beginning that contextually, historically, these were words that Solomon was speaking to his son Rehoboam, who indeed would go on to inherit the kingdom after Solomon's death. The question is, did Rehoboam heed these words? And there is a real cautionary tale here because we know that Solomon actually did not do a very good job of exemplifying these words to his son, and that may be in part why it appears that Rehoboam didn't listen to a thing that his father said, at least here in these verses. And let me, let me show you that. I'm going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. So Solomon, at the end of his life, at the end of his rule, was just putting an incredible burden on the people. Taxes, taking all kinds of things from them. He built shrines to all his uh, pagan wives, pagan deities. So it really brought economic hardship on, on, uh, on, on the people. So he dies. And Solomon and Rehoboam ascends to the throne. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Then they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Look, we'll serve you, we'll be your faithful uh, followers, your faithful subjects, but you need to slacken the heavy load that your father put upon us. It was too heavy to bear. If you do those things, Rehoboam, we will follow you faithfully. Okay. So he, Rehoboam, said, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men 
who had grown up with him, who stood before him. Here they are. Here are the very ones that Solomon was warning his son about coming into his life at this point, at this juncture, at this crucial juncture, not only in his life and in his rule, but in the life of the people. And he said to them, that is, the younger ones, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourgings. You see, he was the prey all along, and they took him down. And they took him down. So what was the result? What happened? Well, tragedy happened. That's what happened. Verse 12, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourgings. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. That's another sermon in itself, how God was orchestrating all of this. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the city of Judah. So as a result, the nation split. Ten northern tribes split off and followed the lead and the command of Jeroboam, and two were left to Rehoboam, Judah and Benjamin. So a whole nation was divided because Rehoboam did not heed the instruction that he got from his father and later from the elders, but paid attention, allowed himself to be seduced by his friends who led him astray, who led them to this place where they made him think that he could continue to take advantage of the people when all along he was their prey. Had he heeded the instruction of his father Solomon and the law of his mother in this matter, he would have been just like the bird in the verse. That's what his father was saying to him. You are the bird. I am showing you 
how they will lay a snare for you. Be watching for it. Be that bird who sees the snare being laid for him so that you can avoid it. He did not heed that. If a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. It knows to stay away. So we've been talking about these things here in the book of Proverbs on a grand scale, right? Because it, avoid, it involves a king and his son who will be heir to the throne and a graceful rule and graceful speech and a, a benevolent lifestyle. But you know, these things are all operative in your life as a believer too, as I've already said. They're out there. They're looking for you. They're looking to entice you. They will be sent your way. And if you're not watching out for them, if you don't know what to look for, then you will be that bird that doesn't see the snare being set for them. And you will be caught in that trap. And it will be too late for you then. You will have been caught in the trap with all of the negative consequences that arise. So. Now that we've all heard the instruction of our Heavenly Father in this matter, derived from the scriptures, let us, let us all go out now and be the birds who are watching out and looking for the nets that have been spread out, out of our sight, to catch us, to try and entice us, to bewitch us, to seduce us, to do things that we know are contrary to what God wants for our life. <laughs>